This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in your team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. In this fractured world of television viewing when you pay an arm and a leg for the sports channels and still regularly sit down to watch a match only to realise it's on a station that you don't have Ugh. isn't there something warm and comforting about a midweek edition of Match of the Day Owen Cannon Murphy with the Irish Times Second Gaps football podcast this Thursday in a great mood because we got Wednesday Match of the Day Murph. Hey there Owen uh, you're obviously still stalking me on Twitter are you? Hmm? Did you see my tweet from last night? No? I didn't But it just kind of blew up so I kind of oh, I'm quite surprised that you didn't see it 94 likes oh, 94 big ones uh, And all because <laughs> Likes aren't big ones They're big ones They're, they're big ones, Ken And uh, all because I said That I've managed to sit down for the start of Match of the Day And not know any of the scores Two retweets Well, retweets have gone out of That's style. the lowest ratio of retweets to likes I've ever seen in a tweet wow. Nobody A lot of sympathy likes And two people Thought it worthy Sorry we haven't even got to What you what you tweeted about yet What did you tweet about I said that I managed to Get to the very start of matches today And not know any of the scores Nothing about anything Nothing about anything Did no. you break your phone <laughs> No I just I didn't look at my phone For two straight hours I know difficult as that may be to believe Three straight hours It's incredible Three and a half straight hours Wow what was I doing um, Yeah So I just I didn't know anything And I I got to play that game You know that game where Every time someone gets fouled, it's like, oh, God, is Dimitri Byatt going to stick this in the top corner? Mm. You know, why are they showing me this corner? It seems like a nondescript event in the game. Why are they showing me this? Oh, a substitution. Mm, what's mm. going to happen here? Mm. This player seems to have picked up a regulation yellow card. I'm sure <laughs> nothing more will be seen from this gentleman for the rest of the game. Uh, yeah, it was a thrill. Oh, it was is, a real, real thrill. Didn't I got as far as uh, West Brom and whoever the hell they were playing. Um, before I checked back into Twitter just to see if you know because obviously I knew that there would be multiple people sending me screen grabs of livescore.com to immediately ruin it for me I mean I, I knew that I was going to tweet this and then immediately 
have to turn my phone back off again. But, yeah, uh, Swansea City. That was it. Um, three, three one. West yeah. Brom. Hey, Murph just Rondon, says hat trick of headers. Oh, Ken, I saw it. I mean, I was as surprised by the first as I was by the third, Ken. I've just retweeted you there, Murph. Oh, I don't want your sympathy. Third you. sympathy retweet there. Ken, Ken wouldn't besmirch his rather strong Twitter following by retweeting frivolously like this, but I'm happy to do so. Oh, thank you. Well, what's a strong Twitter following? It's hard to uh, it's hard to know, really, isn't it? I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo has 48.8 million. That's a strong Twitter following. I'm looking at his account right now. I mean, that's that's how many? Two and a half Donald Trumps? That's a lot of followers. You would you would think that... Well, I suppose you wouldn't either. But, I mean, you know, Trump has got a lot of traction in the world now. He's a quite a powerful man. Ah, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's going up fast, though. You know, he's adding, like, uh, you know, half a million a week or, or thereabouts. He's... Um, it looks as though he's set for some strong growth in the coming times because it is it is increasingly becoming a major conduit of, of mm. significant information. When the world, the world ends, we'll know first via his Twitter account. So, yeah. Yeah. Simon, dramatic sound effect to signal massive bargain on our sports annual, please. Wolfhound, yep. We're now offering the second count of sports annuals, volume one and two, for the terrifyingly reasonable price of twenty euro. I dispute this. I say we can't do this. We can't. 20 euro? That's too good value. That, uh, it's it's ridiculous. We've lost You're the plot. You're going to get sick of value. You're going to call me up and say, Mr. <laughs> McDevitt, we can't take Please. any more value. It's too much value. Please, no more value. If you haven't picked up your volume two yet at just 17.99, now is the time. You get a copy of our first annual, just two euro extra. And we're setting out fast, so best While to While stocks it. last, I suppose, is the legal well, rejoinder yeah, that we need to disclaimer. Well, while stocks last, and also... We do want to get these out to you by Christmas. So if you want to avail this offer, have a look. We'll have the final dates for posting on the website. Yeah, you can mm. get it after Christmas. No problem at all there. We can, we can send them out to you. But I know a lot of people might be getting these as Christmas presents for themselves or for other people. That's two annuals for 20 quid mm. on secondcaptains.com. We've tracked a, a few people who are buying this from multiple multiple people, sending it to multiple addresses around the world. And we thank you very much for your... <sighs> I love those kind of people. ...for your custom. So please keep it coming. Well, <laughs> well, I'm on the subject of books. Our 2016 Sports Book of the Year show will be out today, Thursday. Malachi Clerken is going to be in for that. I know a good few of you have been asking about that. So have a listen. And on this pod, we're keeping with the theme, Ken, literary theme, mm-hmm. by delving into the year 1996 a little bit later. You book out about that year? Yeah, one of, my, one of the top years. Euro 96? Um, yeah, the book is 1996 and the End of History by David Stubbs. Uh, who is one of my favourite writers, I would say. I don't mean to just say everything is one of my favourite... One of my favourite writers and one of my favourite years. Well, perfect. It's a kind of early barnstorming, mm. rollicking good read then. Now, there's some of you who may be listening to this won't even be able to remember 1996. But I can tell... No, probably mostly you can. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I can tell you um, it was a happy time. We didn't even know how happy we were. There was nothing really much seemed to be going on. And so the kind of big, it was almost like the biggest things that happened that year were Oasis and football. It was like, I mean, what kind of, 2016 is a very different type of year. There's a lot of things happening. When people look back, I mean, who's the biggest, who's the biggest band, who's the biggest performer? Drake, right? People aren't going to be looking back in 20 years and saying, well, the year when Drake took over the world. I mean, Mm. You know, they, if they if they're thinking particularly about music, they go, "Oh, Drake was Drake was real big that year. He mm. had a lot of Spotify plays." God but, be with the days when a year could be summed up by the biggest band in that year. Yeah, that would be that would be sweet. I I I long for the return of those days. Ah, uh, yeah. I kind of, 
you don't know what you got till it's gone, you know. Um, but I mean, it's not as though this this book by David Stubbs is is like wow, nineteen ninety six wasn't that amazing because it's definitely not that. Uh, he's kind of picked a year when he thought the nineties were at their ripest before everything started to careen off the rails. Ooh, sounds great. Mm. 1996 and the end of history with David Stubbs coming up after Ken Early's report on sport. Of course, the original end of history book was uh, published a few years before 1996, I think, by Francis Fukuyama, in which he said, history's basically over now, guys. We have, uh, well, when, when I say we, I mean liberal democracy has triumphed over Marxist Marxism-Leninism uh, and all of these other forms of inferior, less evolved forms of government. And we've pretty much arrived at a point which we can fairly uh, well call the end of history, in which all that we'll be left to do is, um, you know, take you know, Friday afternoons off, watch our stock portfolio climb, uh, maybe, um, you know, go to a con- the concert of our favorite band or the match of our favorite football team. There's not really the challenge now, really, is what are we going to do with all this sweet leisure time? And, uh, you know, I suppose it was an attention-grabbing title uh, and has been mocked a lot since, although, you know, it remains a famous book. Um, we'll talk to David Amory about that, but uh, what are we talking about? Ronaldo, no? The man, man with all those Twitter followers. Yeah, he probably remembers 1996, I guess, the 1985 edition, Cristiano Ronaldo, now the owner of four Ballon d'Ors. We Ballon d'Or, I should say, because the S would be at the end of Ballon, right? God, you're a troglodyte. Ballon d'Ors. <laughs> Ballon d'Ors. Ballon d'Ors. Four of them he has. We, the, and this happened on Monday. You know, he was, he was confirmed as the winner. And uh, so four. I mean, Xavi obviously was straight in there. He didn't deserve it. Uh, Leo Messi is the best, despite the trophy someone else might have won. They counted the major trophies, but there are other years in which they didn't use that to award the best player in the world, Xavi pointed out. Ronaldo obviously won the Champions League. He won the European Championships. So did Pepe. And he was arguably a more important player to both of those teams than Cristiano Ronaldo. But, you know, if Pepe had got it, that would have caused a major incident in that Real Madrid uh, and Portugal dressing room. Well, I don't think he was more important to club level, but probably to Portugal. Although Ronaldo did have a few match-winning, match-turning moments. He did. He, he, he scored two brilliant goals against um, Hungary. He gave an exemplary display of strutting captaincy in the penalty shootout against Poland. And he scored a fantastic header against Wales in the semi-final. And then he was injured after 18 minutes or 15 minutes of well, the final. Yeah, but I mean, pride was carried away. But and that's when his influence only began in that game. I mean, he actually, exhorted his troops to ever greater heights. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. He then managed the team to victory. Mm. A friend of mine was saying, you know when Brendan Rodgers is having those hallucinations, when he looks up... Uh, and he sees the Shankly up. He sees Shankly and Paisley hammer down. He sees Ronaldo there as well now. Yeah, <laughs> Ronaldo is one of the great managers. You're doing great, Brendan. Um, so I, I, I put my arm around Adair. That was his name, wasn't it? I put my arm around yeah. Adair's shoulder and I said, "Go on there, big man, and get us a goal." <laughs> and he and did. Sure enough. Sure enough. He did. Ronaldo. I remember watching him celebrate. I mean, this is the. the uh, I was. I was sitting there. Uh, and the Portugal players are all running, celebrating each other. And the only one I was looking at was Ronaldo, who's down on the sideline by himself. I was just watching to see what he did. That's the effect that he has on people, I suppose. Uh, you just want to watch this guy do what he does. I mean, you know, so he's now got four. Messi has five. Messi's obviously better at football. But is that what this is all about, really? 
maybe Ronaldo is a little, just a little bit better at being a footballer in 2016. Understanding the whole package. I mean, I was looking at his Twitter just to see his... I mean, he's got My Golden Ball. It's available in my museum in Madeira. And he's got like four thumbs up on a, on a football, on a picture of the golden ball in this shiny, shiny tiled museum. Uh, I'm in I'm in Japan now for the next important title, six pad. It's Ronaldo flexing his abs with this ludicrous uh, piece of fitness equipment attached to them. Uh, so happy he got to win. But then underneath, last chance to order my Cristiano Ronaldo blankets for Christmas. Save 25% with promo code Chris. And it's literally cr7blankets.com. And a picture of Ronaldo lying in this... Uh, king size bed uh, in repose. Um, obviously, pecs are sticking out above the, the blankets. I looked at cr7blankets.com. I mean, it really it, it is what it says it is. You know, our blankets are a tribute to you. The sign toting, scream at the TV types. You live and breathe your team, and it trickles down into everything you do and everything you wear. That's what separates diehard CR7 fans from everyone else. And those are the types of fans Cristiano and we admire the most. That's why we teamed up to create our exclusive life. You can buy blankets, uh, CR7 Cristiano Ronaldo, in, uh, for $130 in classic black and grey, uh, pink and black, which is breast cancer awareness, Portugal, uh, Christmas and Portugal national colours, which is red and green, um, or uh, Sherpas, which is a smaller blanket, $60. So, I mean, you know, what can I say? Like, this, uh, this guy has it all. And um, once more, did you see his tax declaration, by the way? No, how did it go in the end? 203 million euros in assets. Um, and th- those are just the ones on the tax declaration, which I assume was a pretty f- a full a full accounting. You know what I mean? Mm. 203 million euros, uh, but still um, many more euros to come. Um, Zidane hails him as the greatest player in the history of Real Madrid, which at this stage, I guess he he Di pretty Di much is. Stefano. I mean, Alfredo Di Stefano. Alfredo Di Stefano never won the Ballon d'Or. He wasn't eligible. Was he, or did he? He well, was Argentina. I mean, he was Argentina. Spain. He was Argentina, yeah. but he played for Spain. He must have been available. He must have been available, and he must have won it. But I, 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 I can tell you definitively that he did not win it four times because nobody apart from Lionel Messi has ever done that, uh, except for Cristiano. Last night's football. Well, last night's football was there was there was actually some great uh, matches. Um, the most disappointed team in the top half of the table were definitely Arsenal who were actually the only ones in the top eight who didn't win. They lost to Everton, um, and it kind of turned a bit sour afterwards. Actually, Ronald Koeman. Did you see Koeman afterwards? He was, oh, well, I'm not surprised to hear that it was the referee's uh, fault, uh, because three times I've now beaten Arsene Wenger, and three times it was the referee's fault. So I'm sorry, Arsenal. I'm sorry we beat you because of the referee. I'm really sorry. Wenger's kind of saying, huh, well... You know, I didn't mean to blame it all on Mark Clattenburg. Who, Clattenburg had given a um, corner to Arsenal, uh, to Everton rather, which should have, should have been a goal kick to Arsenal. Uh, Everton scored from that. But really, Mesut Ozil has got to look at himself there. You know, he, if you, if you, <laughs> have you seen the, you remember the goal, it was Ashley Williams' header. The ball comes yeah. in, Ozil, who is, Kind of the closest player to Ashley Williams. I'm not suggesting he really should be marking up against Ashley Williams at a corner. It's the wrong choice of personnel. But you still got to do something. And what Ozil actually did was he kind of flinched down a little bit, sort of like drew his hand slightly up towards his head and flinched down, stooping slightly, and walked 
slowly away from goal towards the penalty spot as Ashley Williams, you know, jumped like a, you know, like a buffalo flying through the air. And uh, it was not, it was not good. You got some angry, I saw troops very angry. Uh, troops from from Arsenal Fan TV, not happy. They're urging people to support Sanchez, not Ozil. He's the laziest player we've ever seen. And so that's just how quickly things can turn <laughs> at the top. But Again, it's, yeah. Hmm. It's not so much lazy, is it? It's more just being afraid of a physical confrontation yeah. with a much bigger man. Well, I mean, you got to at least pretend to be, pretend you're going to do something. You know, as opposed, you can't walk away. I mean, at least walk towards. It's not like you're going to stop him that way either, but at least you're going in the right direction. You know, walking away just, just isn't good. Um, but uh, it was good, obviously a very good win for Everton. Arsenal are up against Manchester City next um, on Sunday which is a big game for both teams. Um, but uh, what else? Liverpool uh, played really, really well against Middlesbrough. The interesting thing here was uh, that after all, you know, we were talking, all the talking that had happened over their goalkeeper, uh, Loris Karius, he ends up on the bench. I I wondered if if uh, if Klopp was going to sort of, you know, like uh, when, when Donald Trump said to, said, Nigel Farage would be a great ambassador to the United States, thus instantly rooting out the possibility, which never existed, to be fair, but just confirming that he could never be the ambassador. You can't do things at the, at the behest. You can't make an ambassador at the behest of a foreign leader. You know, the ambassador is supposed to work for you, not the other. Similarly, I wondered if Klopp was just going to stick with Karius no matter what. <laughs> now that all these people had been saying, you know, you got this guy, he's no good. Um, but instead, Klopp takes him immediately out. Uh, and then says afterwards, I'm not interested in public pressure. I'm interested in the boy. There's no reason to push him through this situation. He loses confidence. He has a lot of things other goalkeepers want to have. We want to develop players. We don't want to convince uh, people that he's not bad. I know him really well. He's much better than he's been in the last two games. It's a situation which Liverpool have as a long-term project. He referred to his little uh, go that he had at Gary Neville, which was uh, he failed in a situation where he, has to ju- he had to judge players. Should we still let him on TV? Mm-hmm. He said, I only want to show how it feels when you get criticized without doing anything wrong. The pundits need to know how it feels. So basically he's saying I was giving them a taste of their own medicine. Um, uh, <laughs> but it still, it goes on. You know, Phil Neville, <laughs> Phil Neville continues. Uh, I don't think we're the only ones who've criticized him. My criticism of him was not for his performance on Sunday or over the last couple of games. It was for the newspaper interview he did and the comments he made about Carragher and Gary. Maybe when you're going through a tough period, I'd give him the same advice I, I got, which is keep your head down. Don't do any press interviews until you have a few good games and wins. Then you can do your interviews. Actually, he's had a couple of seasons in his original. He's basically shut, shut your mouth for like two years. Uh, my advice was not that this goalkeeper is no good. The decision to leave him out was the right one. It was justified in the form of Semenya. He's a young goalkeeper. He'll bounce back. So peace may be about to break out there. Um, but uh, the main thing about the game was we played brilliantly. Well, I mean, in particular. Oh. Amazing. Now, I've talked a bit about David Luiz on this podcast. <sighs> you know, I have talked a bit, and, you know, there might be people, you know, who... No, don't say it, Ken. What? No one's out there feeling that, that they just want you to shut the hell up about David Luiz. No one thinks that. Yeah. You're wrong. But I have to say that I was wrong, but I'm, uh, at least I didn't believe that he was capable of the kind of performance that, that he's been producing this year. Well, there's no need to be beating yourself up about it again because nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. I heard Adam Lallana 
in the interview afterwards and he was asked, so what has this new manager brought to you that seems to have changed your game so much? Nothing. He's brought nothing. <laughs> really defensive, as in, I, I was good before and I'm good now. He's done nothing. I'm just getting into good position, scoring goals. Um, I think he's already scored more goals he this has. season he's, than ever before. He's scored, yeah, he's already broken his own Liverpool goal-scoring record. So it's clearly... Maybe it isn't the manager. Maybe it's something that has come from within himself. But, you know, I'd, I'd say the answer speaks to, as the Americans would say, yeah. speaks to the idea that maybe players sometimes get a bit fed up about these celebrity managers getting all the praise. Yeah. I've just scored, was it, two goals and assisted in one. And here you are talking about how great Klopp is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Klopp's done a wonderful job with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, what do you have sa- much to work with? What there? a salvage job. <laughs> he really cleaned up that old banger. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of the miracle of Adam Lallana? Adam Lallana. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, in fairness, he's playing great. I mean, the, the second and third goals uh, were just brilliant football. You know, like, um, the second one in particular was the was the Origi goal mm. uh, set up by Lalana, but the the product of this uh, incredible flurry of one-touch passes, kind of give-and-go passing, um, brilliant. I mean, it, I think they probably needed it because they'd been through a sort of dropped a lot of points. Uh, dropped seven points out of nine in the previous three matches, so they badly needed to uh, win a game. But they kind of did so in a, you know, with a sort of a statement victory. It's a kind of football that maybe people thought if Coutinho wasn't there, they might struggle to yeah. play this well. But they were they were doing it. So um, still kind of in touch with Chelsea. Chelsea though are the ones who are, you know, they they won again. Two goals conceded in the last ten. Um, Fabregas was the guy who came through, through from them last night. As Phil Neville said, there's a guy who's kept his head down, you know, hasn't done any interviews. Uh, and it's got, he, he, Phil Neville mentioned that in his... Uh, I originally thought when he said kept his head down that he meant kept his head down as he was striking the ball. Which was actually quite noteworthy, how, he, how much he kept his head down as he yeah. uh, stroked that ball into the bottom corner. But but it was obvious from from the subsequent context of Phil Neville's remarks that he meant kept his head down, didn't complain about the fact that Conte had left him out. That, that's true. But I mean, who who can? Not many players complain necessarily about being left out by their manager because it's a very dangerous game to get into. I mean, you hear players doing it, but usually the player is then sold. Yeah. Once again, Carius didn't do anything like that. No, he didn't. Do, he didn't do anything wrong. He was getting slagged off. And he bit back at the people slagging him off in a fairly innocuous way, and they all took umbrage on it. Yeah. These guys are so precious. <laughs> I don't know if I believe in the Nevilles as much as I did a couple of years ago. You're losing your faith. Yeah, in the, the, the shop, the shop stewards. They're just not. You're coming closer to the Yap Stam uh, <laughs> summation on the Neville brothers. Busy, mm. busy, busy bodies, men. wasn't that busy, it? Busy, busy, busy bodies. <laughs> um, but you know, busy uh, people. It was a good strike. Uh, by Fabregas he kind of whipped it in it looked like he passed it but actually there was a good bit of because when I saw it first I thought should the goalkeeper have got that and then uh, on replay I was like no the goalkeeper was never getting that he put just enough power on it Um, the thing so Chelsea have won more games now already this season than they did in the entirety of last season in the league Um, but uh, another big story that happened to Chelsea this week was Oscar um, Mm. going to uh, Shanghai for what's variously reported as fifty-two million pounds, sixty million pounds, okay, big big transfer fee, um, and a big salary, twenty million a year after tax. Uh, so he goes to Shanghai with a club which is currently managed by Andre Villas Boas, and uh, well, 
I mean, I think this is a really big signing, actually, because Oscar is a top player, you know? Just because Oscar has been sort of left out of Chelsea team for most of the season, Oscar is a big player. You know, you got to if, in Brazil during the World Cup, he was one of the main players on the team. Well, at least in terms of his profile, the way, the, the big deal which was made out of him. You know, it was Oscar sort of on all the bus stops. Well, he had a Calvin Klein deal, you know what I mean? But he was kind of, he was like one of the faces of the team. Mm. This is of the Brazilian national team. Um, he is not like Jackson Martinez or uh, Graziano Pelle or, you know, these kind of players who have gone, or, or, or even Hulk. Hulk has also gone, I mean, another current Brazil international. So this is, I think that's a big, it's a kind of move a lot of players will, will look at. The the league sort of needs a bit of social proof, if you know what I mean. Like players five years ago might have gone, oh, China, it's ridiculous. Hang on, how much money? Oh, it's still ridiculous, China. You know, who goes there? Gaza, you know what I mean? But now it's, it's if you've got guys like Oscar there, other players can look and say, well, look, this is this is a credible league. You know, this is a, it's not just about money, which, I mean, clearly, these are professional footballers. They play for money. So Oscar's getting paid 20 million after tax. That's, it's difficult to turn down. This is a trend, though, that's going to be very good news for the Premier League clubs. And it's something we discussed last year when it became apparent that the Chinese clubs were going to pay mega bucks. Chelsea gets off load of player they don't want for 60 million quid. Well, it's the way I saw this being reported was Chelsea believed to be willing to sell Oscar <laughs> for 60 million pounds. I mean, it's well, well, it's good. It's good as long as you're just selling the players you don't want. But you know, if it comes, if it comes to the point where, where they're then saying, right now we want Eden Hazard, and Hazard's like, they're gonna give me, they're gonna give me forty million. I love Chelsea blue till I die and all. Thanks for the memories. <laughs> you know, Chelsea are my favorite English club. Yeah, they're my favorite English club. But it has always been a dream to uh, live in the Middle Kingdom. You know, I don't know though. Well, yeah, maybe. But for the time being, it's looking pretty good. It's looking good. I mean, it's it takes a while to sort of establish. Uh, I mean, the, the Premier League itself kind of went through this process after the European ban. You know, there were, there were no foreign players really in England. Um, uh, not because they were banned, but because English clubs weren't in Europe and didn't pay great wages. And the Premier League started. Eventually, they began to sign players like Jurgen Klinsmann, uh, Ruud Hullet, Gianluca Vialli, Fabrizio Ravinelli, none of whom were really at their peak. Oscar is not like those players. He's more like a kind of uh, mm, Zola, maybe. Well, Zola, even Zola was kind of regarded as Giannino. being a little over. Janino, yeah. Yeah, Janino, that kind of uh, a guy who's, who is actually currently a, a top player. I, I keep, maybe I'm going a bit over the top. It's not like Oscar's really done much in English club football over the last while, but he is, or, you know, he's good. Uh, it's, there must. I think it's also going to. You're going to see a lot of resilience in China. Um, I think it will be a little bit like, you know, a couple of years ago there was a big clustering of Brazilians in the Ukrainian league. Um, you know, some of those guys, William, for instance, Fernandinho, players like that, were at clubs in Ukraine. They get, now, Ukraine is a country which is currently experiencing a major war, mm. um, which is bad for a lot of aspects of life in Ukraine. Um, football is not really an exception and I guess that kind of cohort of Brazilians will now be in China rather than there They're, you know Oscar the only possible loss for him in doing this is do I lose my place in the Brazil team assuming that's still important to him which I think it probably is and the answer to that must be no this is this is an okay place for you to be so uh, go and make your money and best of luck Manchester United are also in the transfer market 
Um, so well, outgoings. Everton are in the transfer market more to the point. Yeah, uh, Morgan Schneiderland going to Everton, apparently. Um, Ron Koeman thinking that Gareth Barry... I mean, Gareth Barry is close to now getting the record for Premier League appearances. He's, he's close to Giggs' record, um, uh, which is which is pretty incredible. Um Considering you know he's thirty five, I mean Giggs Giggs was what forty when he played his was he forty when he played his last match, um, so uh, so Schneiderlin is is the new Gareth Barry in Ronald Koeman's opinion, obviously a player he worked with before at Southampton. The mystifying thing here is why what what happened to this guy at Manchester United? You would have thought he would be the kind of player they could use. Like, you know he's kind of a strong, solid midfielder, like a base midfielder. You know. Mm. Um, and it seems as though Van Gaal wasn't totally sure about him, even though he, he arrived when Van Gaal was the manager. And Mourinho obviously doesn't like, rate him at all, which again is bizarre because he's exactly the kind of player Jose Mourinho's teams are usually full of. And you would think that there was room for him in that team, potentially, just just given that Carrick obviously wasn't on the right side of Mourinho and maybe isn't on the right side of his career age-wise. He's Schweinsteiger similarly, obviously likes of Herrera and those have, have come into fill the needs there mm. but th- it seemed like it was a pretty wide open position at the start of the season yeah or in pre-season and Schneiderlin obviously didn't do enough to impress Mourinho doesn't like him opening up a place in the squad possibly for a, a new signing one more to uh, his specifications his precise specifications mm. um, Jose Mourinho uh, mentioned enjoying a victory last night um, which looked for a while against Crystal Palace as though it was going to be a draw thanks to the Zlatan Ibrahimovic like flick of Damien Delaney. <laughs> How good is that? <laughs> yeah. But uh, then the other Zlatan scored the winning goal for Manchester United, who maybe should have been down to 10 after Marcus Rocha did his second two-footed lunge. Mourinho uh, comes out afterwards and his comments are quite funny. He's playing really well. Phenomenal. He's a clean player. Aggressive. His nature is emotional, but very clean, says uh, Mourinho. Um... I didn't comment on David Luiz's challenge on Marwan Fellaini or Danny Rose's challenge on Mkhitaryan. I'm not going to comment on this one, <laughs> says, says Mourinho. So we're closing the gap to the top four. Three matches played till the end of the year. Let's see how it ends on 31st December. The only drawback from their point of view is that all the other teams, apart from Arsenal, as they're saying, won. But uh, at least they've started to put a couple of wins together. Yep. The one last thing I want to mention is the disrespect or the reaction to disrespect shown by one... Pep Guardiola to an icon, a legend of British broadcasting. Not Marty. Mr. Stanley Collymore. Not Marty. Guardiola's not beating up on Marty. Mr. Stanley Collymore. Sorry, just mention of John Motson. I saw a tweet last week saying, I can't get over how surprised John Motson still is by a goal (laughs) being scored in a football game. And once I've read it, Every time I hear John Watson commentating, you know, the first thing he says, ah, ah! <laughs> after every goal, it's crazy. He's still got the enthusiasm. Yeah. Just loves it. Just but also it. the surprise. I mean, the element of surprise is still very much present there. Never sees it coming. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a great gift for a commentator. But um, what did Collymore have to say to Pep that so angered him? Well, Pep. Uh, well, first, you know, Pep said, "I'm not a coach for tackling. What's tackling?" Hmm. Collymore wrote in his Daily Mirror column, "If Pep thinks he can win the Premier League without coaching tackling, he is deluded." No, more than deluded, he will go back to Spain with his tail between his legs if he thinks it's not about just playing beautiful all the time. It's also about grinding it out when you've got to grind it out. And you've got to be able to grind it out in our game. Just a, 
I mean, I don't really think there was too much controversial about it. Colin Moore, it wasn't a big part of his column. He was just, you know, padding it out, I think. Uh, this was then put to Guardiola in his press conference for the game. You know, Stan Collymore says uh, you need to coach technically. Pep just goes, Stan Collymore? <laughs> As though he was like, didn't understand what those syllables <laughs> meant. You know, like, it's like, is, is, that, that, is that a word? Is that a name? Yeah. Radio some station, English like, phrase I don't understand. It's, it's a name of a column, mm. not, not necessarily of the writer of the column. Stan Collymore? Anyway, everyone went, <laughs> you know, the, the sycophantic laughter of yeah. the press room. Oh. I wouldn't say Stan Collymore liked it too much, but he, uh, we know exactly what he thinks because he wrote a lengthy column about it. <laughs> I had to have a belly laugh at the posts from blogs and websites getting giddy. The Pep Guardiola, when asked about my mirror football column, looked puzzled and asked Stan Collymore. <laughs> They've had a field day, gratefully saying, he doesn't know who you are, etc. Which, bearing in mind most of these journalists wouldn't be recognised in their own front room, makes it even funnier. Says, sorry, you can you can feel the mirth. <laughs> his his sides are shaking with laughter yeah. as he writes these words. If Pep doesn't know who I am, that's absolutely fine. All he needs to do is watch Sky Sports. This is usually the four three game on or used in an advert. That's the Liverpool Newcastle four three game. Uh, chance for Collie Moore. Um, he says uh, maybe he give the former manager of his current club, Stuart Pearce, a call and ask him about who Nottingham Forest's greatest eleven is, managed by a true great of the game rather than one spoon-fed lots of cash to get success. Or ask Robbie Fowler, Liverpool legend and someone I'm sure Pep knows the name of, who his best strike partner was amongst Owen, Rush, Viduka, Shearer, Cole et al. So, um, oh, it, goes, that's unbelievable. it goes on. If a manager feels I'm irrelevant, doesn't know who I am or dismisses me, that's absolutely fine. It's the equivalent of me questioning, like a lot of fans and even Man City fans recently, Pep's ability in England to put a defence together worthy of the name and so on and so forth. But he says, to all of those bloggers and journalists laughing in Pep's press conference today at my expense, I've won awards in your industry, by which he means the you know, media industry, and I have a 15-year playing career to bap it up, to, to bap, to back it up. If Pep genuinely dismisses me, just imagine what he thinks of you. I'm comfortable not being known by Pep. <laughs> Brian. Very comfortable. It's Brian. fine. It's Very relaxed. fine. Brian Clough knew who I was. He rated me highly. He was a double European Cup winner who did it from scratch, not from an Abu Dhabi or Qatar silver spoon. But I make sure I state my name, NUJ number, and full address when I'm next at the Etihad, just in case, Pep. Just in case. They nearly played against each other, you know, Owen. Uh, 1997, Cup Winners' Cup. Uh, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona got to the final where they were going to play either Paris Saint-Germain or Liverpool Football Club. In the home leg, and I'm at the second leg, and I feel Stanley Collymore, Stanley Victor Collymore, set up a goal, beautiful goal for Robbie Fowler with some big man, bustling big man centre forward play. And the second goal was scored by Mark Wright. But unfortunately, the 3 0 deficit from the first mm. leg proved too much of a mountain for the Spice Boys at Liverpool side to climb. That's it for another edition of Cancer Sport. Second captain. They're better at the internet than we are. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Second captain, that's a feeling he's coming. I thought that. Do you believe this? It's so unbelievable. Second captain's on the internet. I'm going to bomb the shit out of him. It's true. I don't care. I don't care. They've got to be stopped. David Stubbs is ready to go on his book, 1996 and the End of History. David, good to talk to you in the show again. Nice to, yeah, nice, nice to speak again. I suppose the obvious question is, what? What 
1996? What about this particular year piqued your interest so much that you wanted to write a book about it? Well, originally um, I was going to do the whole thing about the 1990s and I was going to call it Untroubled Times because everyone always talks that anyone is sure we live in such troubled times. In fact, people did in the 1990s. Um, and I saw it as this decade that was kind of like bookended between, you know, the, the collapse of the Berlin Wall and then 9-11. And in between you had this time of relative, I mean, I'm, I say this, you know, if you're living in the West, you know, as perhaps the Anglo-American European experience was one of relative sort of prosperity and tranquility. Um, and I was interested in how that kind of played out sort of politically, culturally or whatever. Um, and specifically, I suppose, in particularly in the British experience of it. Um, now, then it, it all got a bit kind of given, you know, decline of the Roman Empire, really. You know, it became too big a sort of project to take on, This um, really, was, was that. So in the end, I decided just to focus on the year 1996 because I saw everything come into a sort of crest that year um, in all kinds of directions. And it all seemed to be a kind of subconscious effort to replicate the year 1966 as it played out in the UK, which was a similarly sort of, you know, very sanguine kind of time. How so? Can you just develop that point for us, David? How was 1996 trying to emulate 1966? Well, it was almost like, you know, you had like Oasis were almost like the kind of, you know, the new Beatles. I think there was an appetite for a kind of enormous sort of white guitar band the way that they used to be. I think people had got fed up of all the sort of fragmentation and diversity that you had in music and the whole post-punk scene and all this kind of like eclecticism and you know people just wanted a single thing they could kind of fasten onto they all wanted to be in one big space at the same time i think the stone roses were a hint of that it maybe came from the rave thing people became accustomed to gathering in sort of you know in stadia and fields and things like that i think there was a sort of subconscious cultural need for that um so you had Oasis then as the kind of the Beatles type phenomenon. You had almost like Tony Blair, this sort of parallel with Harold Wilson that doesn't, you know, quite work. You know, that sort of similar kind of optimism for a sort of Labour leader at last after a long period of conservatism. Um, and he was like at that, I mean, Wilson in 66 was already Prime Minister, of course, but Blair was kind of like PM in waiting in 1996. And then he had Euro 96, which was almost like a kind of, you know, it's played out at the old Wembley Stadium and it was an attempt to sort of relive the glory of, 1966 so um i was just fascinated in that this sort of retro optimism of the year and and um you know this strange way in which you know everybody kind of felt pretty euphoric throughout the 1990s i kind of describe it at some point as the anti-joy division decade but um um and and yet it had this sort of strangely kind of retrospective um air about it yeah i mean i mean the one of the most memorable things i you know for me from that year was the um coverage of the semi-final of euro 96 yeah, and before it started, before the match, they just showed sort of Wembley for mm. for several minutes, and the whole place was just going crazy. Football's coming home, and all yeah, that. and oh, yeah, yeah. It, it was like that. You know, this this sort of um, <coughs> idea of a unifying mass experience you're talking about. There was the same, mm. you know, the Oasis uh, concerts at uh, Nebworth Park, and this, yeah. th- a lot of that seemed to be happening that year. But why? Mm. I mean, you, you mentioned this kind of retro field. Why do you think that it was sort of backward looking? The original 1966 wasn't. It wasn't, no. And that's the huge difference. And that's almost ultimately the difference between the Beatles and Oasis, for instance. I mean, Oasis reached a certain point at which they were incapable of kind of developing in a kind of avant garde and interesting, diverse sort of way, the way that the Beatles did from sort of Sergeant Pepper onwards. Oasis simply couldn't do that. They could only kind of go so far. Um, it was, I mean, I don't know, there's almost, despite the fact that, like, you know, it was the end of the Cold War and all like that, there's still this kind of fear of the future and this kind of conservatism and, like, there's almost this idea to sort of people huddling together en masse, um, which just seemed to be a kind of a 
huge factor of the time. Um, um, as, but yeah, but the Euro 96 thing was was fascinating because I always felt that there was a sort of, I mean, it was almost like they'd just come out of the Gray and Taylor era. Um, and there was a sense that, like, you know, that was almost like kind of broken Britain and, you know, led by a turnip and all that kind of thing. And, um, um, or broken England, I should say. And also, uh, you know, so there was that. And then Terry Venimal's good old sort of chirpy 60s cockney type geezer or whatever was kind of, you know, sort of ruling the roost for England again. And, and then I suppose also the idea that, like, football had been redeemed since the 1980s, you know, it's considered this kind of, you know, this pariah sport at that point. Um, and, um, yeah, and, you know, to the effect that it was, like, respectable, you know, it was just that kind of long-term Nick Hornby effect, I suppose, kicking in, to the effect that people like Badil and Skinner could produce that kind of Three Lions song, and it was a kind of, it was, you know, it felt like a kind of a respectable thing for kind of sort of vaguely left-field comedy in, yeah. in, to involve itself Well, talk, talk to us a bit about Badil and Skinner, because you, you, do, you do discuss them, their their popularity. Yeah. The, you know, fantasy football show that was so big in the, yeah. in the mid-'90s. And you kind of talk about them as being part of a move away from... The um, I don't know if you'd describe it as seriousness of mm. of eighties mm. comedy, which was you know or eighties and early nineties comedy, which is often quite angry and political. Maybe you can talk to us, kind of yeah. try and place them in that tradition a little bit. Well, yeah, because I mean they're an interesting case, I think, because. I mean, one of the things I do talk about, I do see comedy as one of the tremendous redeeming features overall of the decade in 1996, you know, Father Ted and everything like that. And I think the reason for that is, in fact, that all the kind of political correctness, the Ben Elton thing that people sometimes get up in arms about in the 80s, actually did its job. Comedy prior to that was really, even a really good comedy, was still dealing in kind of sort of slightly offensive stereotypes and stuff like that. Even even as it was like Dad's Army would have something that would make you, just occasionally have to make you wince. Forty Towers had quite a few things. Even the really good stuff. Were, you know, it was a bit unreconstructed in place. Yeah, I, th- I think, David, this is actually a very interesting point. Like, you, you argue that political uh, political correctness, which you, you often hear people saying, oh, it's, it's terrible, you know, you can't yeah. have a laugh. It was the best thing that ever happened to comedy because the problem with yeah. all of those kind of stock uh, figures you, mm. you're kind of talking about is not just that they were offensive, but they weren't funny. I mean, they were just, yeah. there was just nothing funny left about if they were Maybe if they were funny once, I don't know. But there was nothing yeah. funny remaining about them. They had to... They had to go. Absolutely. I mean, they weren't funny because they didn't accord with reality. I mean, people were kind of content with that for a long while. There's this kind of bizarre disconnect between what entertained them and the reality of their lives. And I think the great thing about, you know, once the edicts of political correctness came in is that comedians, writers, were forced to raise their game. They were forced into a more kind of naturalistic approach. They were forced to kind of create characters and types and situations or whatever that that were kind of more original or at least closer to reality. Um, but as far as, I mean, Badil and Skinner, well, they weren't bad, actually, in terms of a lot of what they did. But they were, you know, there was a sort of postmodernism about that. They were, they were definitely, there was definitely a vague, you, you talked earlier on about anti-seriousness about them. And I think this is something that Badil had a kind of epiphany about that, all of that. And I think it was because he'd experienced one of the kind of sterner sort of stand-up um, routines on, on, on the circuits in the late 80s or whatever. But I think that kind of anti-seriousness is a sort of key theme of the decade. And even the very embrace of football, even in a strangely serious kind of way, is almost like part of this kind of new culture of like frivolity and anti-seriousness that like football is now something that's kind of serious as your life, um, paradoxically. Um, and... Um, yeah, and obviously that kind of ladism thing, it's almost like saying, you know, look, we, we saw, in its own incorrect kind of way, it was saying, you know, look, we've sorted out all this stuff about feminism and stuff like that. Can't we just relax again? Can't we talk about birds and stuff like that again? They, they, I mean, they, 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 were, they were almost like, in, in their own way, they were part, you know, they, they were part of that sort of tendency 
in the 90s. Can't just go, you know, birds, beer, football, lager, guitars, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're doing it kind of slightly in inverted commas. You know, we're not doing it in a kind of slightly obnoxious, macho, offensive way of the 70s. Um, and so I think there were, there were parts of that, definitely. They were at the vanguard of that. It was interesting, just on the football side of things, the, what was one of the most amazing things about Euro 96 was how how it all seemed to go off relatively without a hitch. Maybe that's just nostalgia, but the, yeah. you know, hooliganism was and, and continued to be a problem. And it was only a few years removed from some of the worst, some of the worst atrocities, yeah. some of the worst uh, incidents around hooliganism. But yet the the tournament itself seemed to such a there was such a feel good atmosphere around things. And I don't know, maybe maybe other people experience this differently. I was sixteen at the time. Mm. Uh, yeah. And as an Irish football fan, I was happy enough to support England. I was, uh, yeah. so was I. It was really weird. It was. It was it's it was the ha- only time that's ever happened. It was hard. Yeah. Well, there's always a complicated. Rela- we don't need to get into that relationship <laughs> right here. <laughs> it could be a different conversation, David. But yet there seemed to be they tapped into something uh, that into a, a sort of a, a feel good. Was there was there a mood there? In England at the it time, was. That, didn't it, or it did, was. Or did I mean, the football create it was that? Whole yeah. association with the, um, you know, you know, with Saint, the flag of St George, and I think there was his feeling that it somehow been cleansed, that it wasn't now that that wasn't just the provenance of like dodgy sort of you know neo Nazis in South London or West Yorkshire or whatever, that it was now something that we could reclaim, and there was a sense that it was okay to feel good about being English or British again, you know, because things felt kind of on the up. And, um, you know, and you could get back some sort of sense of community and identity that arose from those kinds of things. And I think that's something that people really kind of basked in. And, yeah, there was a real feel-good family. Although, having said that, it did turn very, very sour indeed the night that um, West, you know, that, that Germany beat England. And um, there were actually quite a few, you know, there was a lot of sort of rioting, you know, not dissimilar to what happened in 1990, you know, in the same, when you had the same result as well. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing about this, the England uh, team, or, yeah. or, you know, say the attitude of someone like yourself. I mean, you were mm. you were like a, a writer for Melody Maker. Mm. Um, you know, you were not. You would not have been like a super patriot. Uh, no, no, but, I wasn't. But, but somehow, was somehow you you were. Somehow you yeah. kind of you, you got this. <laughs> it's funny bit where you're talking about Germany. Like the Daily Mirror had this misjudged mm. headline: Achtung. Fritz or Achtung Surrender for you, Fritz, the Euro 96 is over. And and you're saying this is completely, it wasn't as though we wanted to beat Nazi Germany. Mm. It was Kraftwerk Germany. Yeah, this sort yeah. of <laughs> su- superior, you know, it's just they're just better at things than us. And even yeah. for somebody like you, who, who maybe would yeah. have been a bit more detached from that real, ugh, this actually really mattered. Yes, it absolutely did. I mean, you know, and it does it in every other respect. I would count myself as a very sort of sophisticated, extremely sophisticated sort, you know, and listen to sort of, yeah, kraut rock, stereo lab, all these kind of things, a real Europhile and very, very sniffy about little Englanderism. But when it came to England, I, I you know, I have to be frank, I, I, I felt it. I wasn't one of these kind of very clever anybody but England types. You know, I felt it. And I think that this is to do with, Football, you know, if you're a football fan, it's, it's this, Nick Hornby also talked about this at one point, it's, it's something that it's one continuous factor. It's like John Motson, something like that. If you have a certain age, he's the one sort of like long, you know, continuous factor that goes right back to your childhood. And of course, when you're a child, you know, you're not very sophisticated. You do get into football and you get into it very ardently. And, you know, and if you retain it, you keep that kind of year in, year out. So, yeah, I, for that reason, you know, and I think that, you know, I'm like a lot of people in that respect, you know, I, I, I was really much, you know, there, there were lots of aspects of 1996 that disaffected me, Oasis, for instance, but not the England thing. So in England, I could experience what 
everybody else is experiencing, really. What yeah, about Blur? Let's get to the point. Let's get to the point of the chat, David. Did Blur also disaffect you? It sounds like you were more of a Blur. <laughs> I wasn't so bad with Blur, to be honest. Although I think that, you know, sometimes Damon Albarn seems to be a bit more kind of leery. And, you know, I used to play football with Damon Albarn, actually. Oh, yeah. He used to have a big game on Regent's Park. Yeah, was he, he good? Yeah, he was a bit selfish. He never passed the ball. And I think he thought he was a little bit kind of better on the ball than he was but that's by the by but um, um but yeah no, I, I, I always thought that um Damon Albarn's a lot more talented and a lot more kind of um broader in his kind of cultural outlook than that whole sort of involvement brit proper oasis know. are the ones who get an entire, I think oasis they, they genuinely sort of reach their limit you know well, they they get an entire chapter to themselves in this book and i like yeah, yeah. Um, how much of how much of it do you think is a story about drinking i mean everyone seemed mm. to be drinking a lot in 1996. Yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, and I none, none, more so than, you, none more so than Gascoigne. I mean, you, you know, Gascoigne, the star of the England team, who yeah. in the lead up to the tournament, there'd been so much stuff about his, his drinking, you know, on the plane, yeah. in Hong Kong, with Danny Baker and yeah, Chris yeah, Evans. Yeah. How do people feel about that at the time? Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I suppose, you know, there, there was a kind of a mixed feeling about it because on the one, and then I think the tablets had a kind of mixed feeling. On the one hand, you know, here was this kind of uber lad or whatever. On the other hand, he was disgusting, with an oath, with no pride. And I suppose that, but you know, so it was interesting all of that because you saw a conflation. You know, the fact that uh, that Gascoigne is palling around with people like Baker and Chris Evans, who somehow or other end up being almost like this kind of pop cultural leading edge. Um, but then, of course, I think everybody collectively felt that exasperation. Remember, in Euro '96, in that semi-final, it's the golden goals thing. And, you know, the, the ball comes like sort of sliding across the six-yard area and Gasco, and he just doesn't lack that half a yard of pace just to get on the end of it and, like, slide it into the net. And you just think that was just one too many bloody lagers with Chris Evans, you know. It was just that kind of sense of, like, you know, all of that kind of ladism. You actually blame Chris Evans. That vital point. You blame Chris Evans for that. I mean, I... I blame him personally, yeah. You, you've got a, you got a bit in the book where you talk, you know, you, you're making playing your frustration with Gascoigne yeah. But it's mainly frustration directed at Chris Evans. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I just think he's a kind of embodiment about everything I really sort of disliked about, you know, that kind of culture, like I say, that reached its crest in 1996, definitely. Um, and I said, you know, and I suppose I'm, you know, a part of the book is a kind of mourning for the 1980s, you know, which in lots of ways is my sort of decade, really. And I suppose, you know, if like Oasis are like the anti-Joy division and Chris Evans is the anti-John Peel, you know, in every respect. And what I just found was appalling. I thought we've had people like him before, these kind of Wally-ish DJs, you know, sort of in the 70s that have been like Dave Lee Travis or whatever, you know, they'd have been in speedboats with bloke dresses, wombles and stuff like that and doing summertime specials or whatever, you know, and wearing coloured horn rim specs and stuff like that. And, and yet here, for some reason, this is the guy that like they sent out to interview Bjork and Blur and people like that. This is a guy who somehow managed to kind of wangle his way, not just to sort of, you know, an immensely kind of wealthy broadcasting career, but right on the supposed leading edge of like um, left field culture as it's represented on the telly, you know, and I just really couldn't get that at all. And the fact that people were sort of saying he's this kind of genius, I think he's just... He's Timmy Mallet. What's up with you? You're killing me, David. You're, I, you're, ta- you're talking to a man here who, uh, in well, one of his fans, one of his original fans, go, oh. a sixteen-year-old, a sixteen-year-old. No, let's go. Let's go younger than sixteen. About 12, 13, 92, 93, yeah. The the big breakfast years. I honestly yeah. set my alarm for seven o'clock. Was it even earlier? Whatever time it started. Even though I lived about a minute from my school, I set my alarm. Watched Chris Evans and Gabby. What was Gabby's surname? Gabby Ros. Gabby Roslin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Religiously for two hours, talking nonsense to some family and interviewing people in baths and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and I went on to. I actually did go on to enjoy TFI Friday quite a lot. Of that tapped. It, that tapped into a lot of the good vibes yeah, around at the this time. Is, this no? is beginning to get awkward now. 
Well, I suppose there was this kind of association with, you know, when I was a very young lad, I think I remember finding Noel Edmonds immensely entertaining. Um, you know, I suppose at that point, you know, you can develop an affectionate association. And people look, and people did say to me, look, if you go back to some of the really early things, it really, you know, it's genius. But I, I, I was just never able to see it. Perhaps my kind of sort of, you know, my sort of faculties and perception are so sort of misted over with rage at like what I perceived him to come later on that I was never able to, um, you know, um, to uh, to appreciate that. So, yeah, I, I apologize for, you know, you ah, know urinating okay. on your memories or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this, the, this year, really, when you look back, there's something very uh, blithe and carefree and complacent about it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it seems almost. I kind of miss it, you know, for everything that oh, was yeah. lazy and, and sort of, yeah. you know, obviously things were about to career off the rails. Yeah. But like, yeah. I do, do you, do you, looking back, kind of see that there's elements of a golden age to this? Uh, well, that, 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 certainly a golden age of sort of, yeah, prosperity and tranquility and a sense of like, you know, it was okay. but what was and things being, yes, indeed carefree. And I mean, that's nice, you know, it's like, you know, an afternoon's drinking or something like that. But, I suppose what's interesting, I probably don't quite go into this in the book, is, you know, it, it was maybe in the 60s, you know, they were saying, okay, right, we've reached this sort of plateau. Now we can really kick on, you know, spiritually, materially, or whatever, immaterially. We can creatively, we can really kind of go on and reach a level. We can look forward to the age of Aquarius. We can evolve as a species. But in 1996, it was just like, let's go down the pub. <laughs> it was, you know, there was no sense of like, you know, I think that underlying all of that euphoria, there wasn't this kind of futuristic optimism as such it was uh, um you know approaching toward the end of the century there was still a sort of a, a hangover a sort of nihilism or whatever or cynicism or any a, a lack of any particular idealism or anything like that that's what's kind of lacking i suppose from 1996 as opposed to 1966 and yeah and it was just uh, you know i suppose that's intriguing you know, it's a manifestation of human nature i suppose or maybe it's just um in 1966, people singing songs of innocence. Still in 1996, it's 66 songs of innocence. 1996, songs of experience or whatever. Maybe there's a sort of, despite all the euphoria, there is a kind of underlying cynicism about the prospects for human nature or whatever. Thing, you know. So you just dull your senses with the lager, perhaps. Okay, well, listen, David, we can't sit around here chatting all day. I've got a box set. <laughs> Don't forget your toothbrush to order online. <laughs> so I, I best get to it. 1996 and the end of history is the name of the book, David. Great stuff. Thanks a million. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. It was great fun. Cheers. Timbuktu. They're all pumped. We haven't got leaders. They're all just headphones. They don't communicate. You can't get anything out of them. That's why we're no good. They're all just headphones. They don't communicate on the pitch. They don't communicate off the pitch. They're all pumped. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. And then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu. How have England reacted to that equaliser? Perfectly. Um, no panic. Calm straight down. Continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's hearts. It's been the perfect response. You'd think that, no problem. England will after four minutes. And they still lost. Maggie Thatcher, your guys took a hell of a beating. Maggie Thatcher, your boys took a hell of a beating. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really, Sigthorsson, 
Oh, my oh, word. My oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, just say, Sig Thorson. <laughs> just cannot. I think I'll be okay, Ken. I think I'll be okay. But if the criticism of Chris Evans bugs me, I can only imagine what a large, quite a substantial part of our listenership will be thinking, hearing Oasis getting thrashed around the place. <laughs> a lot of Oasis fans, I'd imagine, listen to this. Well, if Oasis fans, current, former. Um, well, once an Oasis fan, Ken. David makes it sound as though he's absolutely um, slaughtered Oasis in this, which, I don't, which he hasn't. Uh, he, he actually, they do get a chapter to themselves uh, because I think they because they were the biggest band because this year belonged to them um, you know that year and a couple of years around it but he it's quite funny when he's talking about uh, he was writing the Melody Maker review of What's the Story Morning Glory and he was and he said you know it wasn't because I wanted to do a hatchet job I was actually looking forward to it he likes a lot of the stuff that they'd done his favourite Oasis song is Acquiesce you know the one yeah, he's, he's yeah. I'm looking forward to doing this, but then listen to it, and he's just like, "This is, this is crap." You know, this just doesn't. This is, come on, this is this is not this is not that good. I mean, it's all right, it's serviceable enough, but it's not. Come on, it's not great. And of course, it became like the, <laughs> it became the the defining album of the age. David's just there. Oh Jesus Christ. Um, you know, everyone, and and he said, you know, he, he looked around and a lot of the reviews, it seems there was a kind of a bit of a, we all have to give this album a pretty decent score. Or we'll lose our access to Oasis, who were, you know, just the biggest thing going, you know. Yeah. But, you know, he, but he had the last laugh. A lot like my me and David Louise. Um, not that I want to keep harping on about David Louise. David Louise. David Louise. Not that I want to keep talking about him. But he said, look, the thing is, Oasis were knackered. Now they had they had kind of reached their limits. He talks about that concert at at Nebworth, the the one where they it's like a record, like nearly two hundred thousand people, you know, and like they're they're just on stage going, this is this has got out of control. <laughs> we're not really sure that we can we're comfortable with the responsibility that history appears to have placed upon. I mean, really, we just want to kind of hang out, you know, get pissed, do a bit of partying. This is yeah. There's a lot of pressure on us now here. And that, that's how we ended up with that next album with the car and the swimming pool and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was just things. They had run the out of ideas. The helicopters in the first video. But I wouldn't say... What was, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, what was the video called? Or the, was it Be Here Now? Was that the album? Yeah, I can't I think even so, remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was terrible. But uh, I wouldn't say that he's just slaughtering them all the time. I think he's got a fair bit of respect for them. But he was he's criticizing. He's not like a... You know, it's not just adulation. You know, after 20 years, you don't get pure adulation. you got to have a critical... Um, fairness. Gavin Sweeney has a critical fairness. He tweets at Second Captains to tell us that your Kennedy's freedom from decisions talk is about two nihilistic soliloquies and a tash away from landing the lead in True Detective season three. <laughs> For those who haven't, such as myself, who haven't seen any True Detective. <laughs> oh, if you haven't seen True Detective, that probably will be Makes funny. No but True, yeah. Well, we're talking about your the point you're making the other day about. Was it was it was it Ngolo Kante? He said that we get very bored by our Kante. manager, by our training, but it's okay. It's good. It works. Yeah. And we made the point that maybe players want to be bored, and you in particular yeah. ran with that and said players just want a big tough guy to boss them around. Them the Human day. beings in general, just free me from my individuality, allow me to join with everyone else in submission to the and then wrapped it on like that in a portentous manner. And uh, Gavin was evidently reminded of. Uh, 
Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> have, you, have you seen True Detective? I'm sorry, Ken. You haven't so, seen I'm it? Sorry, I haven't. Has nobody seen this show? There's so many shows to watch. It's not, how, much, how do you have all this time? Um, uh, it's, it's worth it's worth the first series of it is, is worth a, worth a look. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mystical sort of portentous talk, which in the end really doesn't amount to all, all that much. Like, and, all that about? and obviously seeped into your subconscious somewhere, and a little bit of it leaked out last last Monday. Yeah, you can uh, get on to secondcaptains.com if you're looking for some good quality sports writing and some beautifully designed books. You can get two of them for just twenty euro now. The Second Captain Sports Annual Volume One and Two available to purchase. On secondcaptains.com. Murph, I've had a look. Good news. Go My on. endorsement of you has sent this tweet ratcheting. It's real. Uh oh. Yeah. Uh oh. We've gone up to 105 favorites now. Wow. Pushed over the 100 mark. So that's. Uh, uh, any more retweets? No, just still just the three. Myself and a couple of the brothers, probably. Listen, the retweet is dead. Okay. It's over. It's likes are where it's at now. So that little, everyone knows. That little that. love heart. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Thank you, Ken. Kieran. Thanks very much. We've got Matty Clerkin in for our Sports Book of the Year review 2016 later on today, so do listen now for that. In the meantime, thanks for listening to this one. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Second captains. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code mom.